It's time to stop dealing and start demanding. It's time to stop being PC and start being transparent and authentic. It's time to get real. Prepare yourself. It's time for Crazy and the King. Welcome to Crazy and the King. Hey, Torin, how are you? I got my goldfish. I got my glass. It's you time to get crackers. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I know, I know that's like a kid snack, but I have been uh, on my computer since five a.m. rocking with the good folks over in London, TA Global Gathering. So. Trust me when I tell you, I need every bit and piece of energy. Now, I'm not sure if goldfish are going to give me energy, uh, <laughs> but nonetheless, that's what I got. How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, I didn't get a chance to do the the TA Global today, but I know Chad did, and I heard it was an awesome show. So I'm, I'm excited to catch, catch up with him about it. Yeah, they did well. Um, I started because, of course, it was early this morning. And um, let me just say, Janine uh, did a, a a panel of all black women. And when I tell you it was it was like rocket fuel for me, Julie, it was it was frustrating uh, in one regard and, you know, just revealing the, the challenge that black women face in. You know, I'm just going to read a tweet that I put out uh, this morning at around 5 a.m. It said or or yesterday morning at 5 a.m. It said uh, the buzz on HR, Miss Janine Nicole, trap recruiter, Tiffany Kuehl, HR Jazzy and Verdant Bloom LLC. Those five women just told the world that they have never felt safe or whole at the same damn time in their work environment. And that it's incumbent upon each and every one of us to do better. So I've been at it all day. Foot is on the gas pedal. And we're going to continue with this conversation right here. You know, last week we tackled Robin D'Angelo's white fragility. It was in a great conversation. Like I got a lot of feedback on the socials. People enjoyed how we juxtaposed, you know, or, or let me say a different word, how we situated Robin D'Angelo's book. We weren't demeaning or negative, but we gave them a different way to look at it. And I, I received a number of messages. Uh, it wasn't a bunch of them, but you know, I got like <laughs> 10, I mean, I got like 10 messages and people appreciated how you and I situated her book. Yeah, that was a fun conversation. And I, I got the same, I get the same reaction and it's always just a good reminder that, uh, people want us to keep it, keep it authentic, keep it real for you sounding like a 90s kid, but, you know, that we just should have these honest conversations about how we feel and, and, and what triggers us and what doesn't and, and how to think about things differently. Because I, I hadn't thought about uh, white fragility differently until you introduced this whole new set of authors that I now get to explore. Absolutely. And I get to explore it with you. And I appreciate that. So we have another good show, I believe, uh, before we go roaring down tracks one and two. Uh, you know, because Julie and I are on separate tracks, but we merge and deliver an incredible episode of Crazy and the King. Um, let's just say that it is going to be an incredible conversation. I don't use incredible with uh, the type of affection that I'd like to be associated with it. I say incredible because of the amount of disappointment that is about to to be shared. So trigger warning, this is going to be a longer episode than normal. So if you are listening to us uh, in your normal listening routine, be it driving, uh, you might be sitting at your desk. Uh, I want you to know that this episode is certainly going to be longer than our 30, 35 minute average. It's going to contain some information that we don't typically talk about. So just adjust as you see fit. But before we do that, uh, Julie, is it all right with you? I just want to cover a couple of stories that we we won't have time to to dig into, but I, I do want to mention them because they are timely. Is that all right? Oh, yeah. Go for it. 
Awesome. So real quick, Halle Berry apologizes for transgender comments after facing fierce backlash. Uh, She offered, actually, the scenario is she offered to play a role of a transgender and she ended up misgendering the individual in her conversation. And, and, and then so the feedback started to, to, to swell on, on social media. And some some said that, honestly, a transgender person should play the role and not Hallie. And so, of course, she apologized and she acknowledged the fact that, A, it was a bit of a learning experience for her. And and she ended up ultimately agreeing that a transgender person should play the role. It's not as if you can't find one. And so or find someone, I should say, not find one, find someone. Uh, And then the other story that I think is wonderful is there was a leaked letter to the NFL by Native American leaders demanding that immediate action be taken on the name of the Washington Redskins. And so in a leaked letter, uh, Commissioner Roger Roger Goodell and other stakeholders and public officials on Monday said that Native American leaders demanded that the league take immediate action to change the Washington Redskins name. The letter outlines seven non-negotiable steps the league should take, including banning all use of Native imagery, names, slur names, red face and appropriation of native culture. Now, let me tell you something. Nothing made me happier this week than for them to exercise their voice. It's what I say all the time. And I love when people say enough is enough. Like it's absolutely well beyond past due that that consideration be given. And so I'm hoping that the Redskins change their name. I don't watch football, but anyway, I'm still hoping that they change their name. And then finally, we are adding our first sponsor. So we'll begin to uh, to give them some love. Uh, let's just say that Julie and I are extremely happy about that because it says that people are listening and they are trusting the content that we are putting out. And we'll also be sharing some news that we're moving to a new platform, a new network. So stay tuned. So let's hop into our story for this week. I'm going to set the stage while you get your water, because I know you're going to need it, Julie. Yep. So for the listeners, a a text comes across uh, and the article referenced in the text is in the Texan. And the headline is Austin Hospital withheld treatment from disabled man who contracted coronavirus. The article is titled Austin Hospital withheld treatment from disabled man who contracted coronavirus. So I want to enter the story with a passage from the June 29th article in the Texan. It says, quote, on Saturday, when Miss Hickson returned to the hospital, the nurse supervisor took her to see or to Mr. Hickman's Hickson's room. It was at the end of the hall, empty and dark with no machines at all for treating him. So, Julie, why don't we tell the story of Mr. Michael Hickson, a black disabled father of five? Yeah. Um, so Tor and I, I've been talking a lot about how COVID is opening up a lot of eyes to what's happening for people with disabilities in the, in the healthcare field and specifically bringing forward, uh, states who put plans in front of, uh, health and human services to, um, release themselves and the hospitals from liability if they chose to not treat. Uh, disabled people, people with significant um, comorbidities, or people who um, were unlikely to recover due to their age. And I got a lot of flack for it at 
at the beginning saying, you know, well, HHS said that's not possible and, and they denied those requests. So I just needed to not worry about it. And, and my comment back is this is, this is the story that someone feels comfortable enough to write into a plan that's federally and publicly available that they should be absolved if they choose to, um, put eugenics or euthanasia into place during this pandemic. And we need to be responsive and enraged by the language because it is going to result in the death of, of human beings with disabilities. And I caught this story on the Texan and I, it just, it it just shattered me. It it was so devastating. Um, Mr. Michael Hickson, uh, father of five, um, he wasn't born with a disability. He experienced a, a, a cardiac arrest in 2017, and and through that, he um, acquired a brain injury. He became a quadriplegic, although he could still move his arms and, and hands, um, and he became permanently disabled. And so, you know, through this story, um, we're going to be able to hear specifically from Michael's wife, uh, Melissa, who is a champion, and and we're going to play some parts of the conversation she and I had throughout the pod, and and who better to tell his story than than Melissa. Uh, and I want to start, if, if it's okay, um, with just a little bit of Melissa about their love story and, and how Michael felt with his family. Yeah. And before we get to that, I just want people to understand, you know, what we are doing, what we're trying to do is amplify the voice of what some would say are the voiceless. Many more would probably say uh, those that, you know, are, are speaking, but they're not being heard. You know, they're not being given um, the respect of what it is that they're their life experience is it's being discounted. Exactly. And when exactly. the story came across, you know, when Julie shared the story, we immediately knew that it was something that we needed to spend some time on. And hence the reason why the episode is going to be a bit longer because we just want to, we, we, we really want to do the story justice. Uh, and so as Julie said, Let's take a moment to give a listen to Miss Melissa Hickson as she talks about her love of Michael. So our our story started um, back in 2002. Um, we met. It was, and this is kind of old school, I guess, but it, it was it was it wasn't really an online dating service. This was like a phone kind of chat line, um, and so. I was just about to, to close it out um, and I got a, a message from him because you can message each other when you're on there. And he actually messaged me and he said, um, you know, something to the effect of, you know, he'd like to talk to me a little bit more. And, and I disregarded it because I was like, I'm on here to get off of here, not to meet anybody. <laughs> okay. So I went on to check my messages and close out that phone service. And he messaged me again, and he was just like, okay, you ignored me the first time. Uh, what's going on? And so I thought, okay, he has a lot of nerve, first of all, you know, kind of messaging me again and questioning what I'm doing. I was kind of, you know, kind of intrigued a little. So I, um, he left his phone number. I called him. We talked. It was a great conversation. And every night we talked after that, um, every <laughs> single night. So, you know, we finally met at one point, and um, I first date I fell asleep in the movie theater (laughs) (laughs) Um, I fell asleep on his shoulder in the movie theater woke up his arm was around me and the credits were rolling and I looked at him so embarrassed like oh my gosh I was asleep the whole movie that's never happened before and I was like why did you let me sleep and he said well I knew that you were tired and I wanted you to sleep and from that moment on I knew that he was a keeper um I left that night feeling like I've met my husband. Wow. We have been inseparable since two months after we met, we got married. Um, And the rest is pretty much history. He, we moved a couple of times, finally settling in Texas. 
his personality always has been one of which, like, he's always been happy, easygoing, really, really, really smart. That's one of the things that drew me to him was the fact that he was so smart. He knew everything. Um, he was a human calculator, very inquisitive, very just, just that kind of nerdy kind of like person that you just, you know, that they just, you know, you kind of hate them a little bit for being so smart, but then it's kind of intriguing a little bit because they know everything. Um, but he was that right mixture of like just nerdy, but kind of fun and laughter. And we joked all the time. We laughed and joked all the time. Um, so pretty much his personality, you know, he loved games, anything having to do with intellect, like Sudoku was his, his go-to solitaire. Um, crossword puzzles. I mean, anything that involved anything like that, but was a game, he was all about it. You always saw his phone in his hand playing a game, no matter what it was. He loved There's something called Ingress, where it's like a scavenger hunt like type game um, with your phone, and he would get lost and play Ingress. You know, we look up and say, where's that? And then we look, and 30 minutes later, he's walking up, still looking at his phone, and just playing Ingress. So, but he was a family man. He loved his kids. He all he ever wanted in life when we first met, we talked about what we wanted and all he wanted was kids and a house. Um, that's all he ever wanted. And we came close a couple of times to the house part of it and just didn't make it, but we definitely can check the kid box. <laughs> <laughs> we did do that. Um, but yeah, just really fun, easy going, loving God, the smile that can light up any room. If you ask anyone who's ever met him, the first thing they'll say is his smile. Um, he just had one of those smiles that just was inviting and loving and friendly um, and a genuine heart for loving people and a genuine heart for loving God. And so that's the things that people need to know about him, um, that he was a really great person. Um, he will be missed. What an incredible love story, right? I mean, those are the kind of, of love stories that, we all dream about as, as little girls and, and hearing how much Michael loved being a dad and, and loved taking care of his kids and how hard he worked for them and, and how, you know, their dream really was to have that white picket fence and have all of those little babies uh, be able to run around in that yard. Um, and, and I thank Melissa for, for sharing that story. And let, let me ask you a question, you know, before you before you yeah. move off that, you know, w one thing that I gathered as, as I listened to interviews uh, and we'll probably get to them a bit more in the the episode. But one thing that I gathered in all that I could vocally hear um, where Melissa's voice was included is even in her grief. This is a woman who is balanced calm, measured to a degree. I mean, nothing about her. There was no shake in her voice. Was it the same way when you were talking to her? Yeah. I, I mean, grace is the, the best word that I can think of when I'm talking about her. She warm, kind hearted, gracious, in love with her husband and, and her family and, and so proud of the man that she married and it carried through in, in every conversation that I've had with her this week. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Terrible. Uh, so, so, so how do we end up here? Hospital. So he yep. went to the hospital in early June. Um, he was taken to David's medical center in Austin, Texas he was in a facility where he was exposed to COVID. I'm not sure, you know, how large the facility is. You know, I don't know how many people may have been uh, deemed as positive before he was determined to have had the COVID disease. But I know that in one of his tests, he actually tested negative. Right. Uh, and I want to say that it was after that, you know, maybe a subsequent test a few days later where he was tested positive and in need of medical attention. Yep. Did she share any, you know, insight around 
why he needed medical attention? Yeah. So as you know, with a COVID virus group settings, um, like nursing homes, uh, rehabilitation facilities, those types of group settings put people in extreme cases of vulnerability to exposure to, to COVID. And then on top of it, 99% of those individuals are also going to have um, comorbid conditions or they're going to be older. And so Michael, had a, he had a very complex medical history and a very complex set of, of medical needs uh, following his, um, the, you know, acquiring his disability. And so when he tested negative after someone in his facility tested positive, everyone was feeling pretty good. But a few days later, he really started to um, exhibit the, the systems of some upper repress, some upper chest kind of distress, um, respiratory. respiratory. There we yeah. go. There It'll go. get me every time. Um, and so they tested him again and decided he needed to be admitted to, to the hospital. So they moved him to St. David's uh, Medical Center in Austin. And he had um, some sepsis, some other infections happening, and he needed to be treated for COVID. So in no part of this story am I or we are dismissing the seriousness of, of Michael's medical condition and the seriousness of the attention that he needed to be able to um, beat COVID. Uh, but the good news and is. Nor, but, but nor are we discounting the fact that he was alert, he was responsive, and he was in good spirits in the few times that he was able to FaceTime with his wife, Melissa. And I don't know if those FaceTimes occurred while he was in transition. I don't know if they were prior to him leaving the nursing facility and on his way to uh, the medical center. I don't know if the FaceTime happened at the medical center, but the point that is important is even though he had tested positive and they said he needed medical attention, it's important for you listener to know that he was alert, responsive, and in good spirit. Yes. He, she even even mentioned that uh, when, when they were FaceTiming, he said, oh, give me a kiss and was kind of just teasing her and flirting with her just in his normal, you know, Michael way, husband way. Um, and so, you know, it, serious um, in terms of getting him treatment, but something that she was starting to adjust to when you are caregivers with someone um, with very serious, complex needs. And so, you know, when she was able to go to the hospital and uh, meet with the physician who was treating um, her husband, she recorded a conversation out in the hall um, with that, that physician. And just like the things that we're seeing in the Black Lives Matter movement, we would never hear this story if Melissa hadn't recorded this conversation. And and we're going to play it for you. But when we do, I just want you to think about someone talking about your spouse or your child or your your sibling in the way that this doctor speaks to Melissa. Yeah, but let me set this up. So the the real conversation is coming from a YouTube clip, which we will put in the show notes. The real conversation is a bit more than five minutes. What we're going to share with you is a little less than a minute, uh, if you will. But again, it's coming from a five minute conversation. And one part that I don't remember, Julie, maybe you can correct me. Is this her first visit to the hospital to see Michael? After his transfer or, and when I say hospital, pardon me, I mean St. David's Medical Center. Is this her first visit to him in St. David's Medical Center or might this have been her second or subsequent visit? Do you know? So it's my understanding that this was her first visit, but I, I, I may be talking out of school, but no I, I believe That's it fair. is. That's fair. So as a listener, just... We're going to play a minute, a little under a minute, but I want you to listen to, we want you to listen to the recording that Melissa Hickson captured with the doctor that is treating Michael at St. David's 
Medical Center in Austin, Texas. Have a listen. At this point, with, with the decision is, do we want to be extremely aggressive with his care, or do we want? Uh, do we feel like this this will be futile? And the big question of futility is one that we always question. And the issue is, will this help him improve his quality of life? Will this help him improve anything? And will he will it ultimately change the outcome? And the thought is, none of the answer is no to all of those. Because as of right now, his quality of life, he doesn't have much of one. So because, these are because he's four around the brain again. He doesn't have quality of life. Correct. Just let that sink in for a minute, right? The audacity and the arrogance, as that doctor says. Michael has no quality of life and that that is correct, that they will not treat him because he has a brain injury and because he's a quadriplegic. Um, I don't know about you as a listener. And I'm certainly... I'm many moons away from being a doctor. I'm many moons away from being a lot of professional people, if you will. But I got to tell you, when I listened to the entire recording, I, I, I don't, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can drive home the depth of what, what that made me feel. I said to the folks at Transform back in June when I spoke, I said, as black people, I said, as black people, we have been hated and oftentimes hunted. And yet we've taught the entire world how to love. And in that moment, in listening to her for those five minutes having the end result of the conversation be basically we don't think he deserves it's not worth him living because we don't think that he's going to have a good quality of life and they're making the decision in that conversation and the way that she the way that she shouldered responded to that conversation. I don't, I don't know if I could have done that. Like Julie, I just don't know that. if I don't know if I could have operated with that degree of measurement and re- result. I don't, I just don't know if I could have operated that way. If it were a doctor talking about someone in my family, right. I'm, I'm just not confident. I could. I, I am I am confident that I could not. And again, you know, when you listen to the to the fullness of the conversation between her and the doctor, it's just that grace and that taking in the information and processing it and asking questions um, that needed to be asked, but with such grace and, and such a clear response that Michael's life did mean something, and that there was quality to that life and to that family and what he means um, to her and to their five children. And, you know, we we asked Melissa um, to tell us more about what Michael was like after his accident and, and kind of the joy that she continued to bring to him. Um, and even I read from social workers about how Michael had improved so much after his injury, um, and they had a much different take on Michael's quality of life than than that doctor did. And I, we're not going to have time to play it all right now, but I did have a full 35-minute conversation with Melissa that we're going to release separately from this podcast. And you, you'll be the judge for yourself, right? You listen to her talk about what his life was worth and imagine what it was like to be on that, that receiving end. It's almost as if we need to take those 35 minutes and make that our episode for like a bonus 
you know, like we'll drop this EP um, as we normally would, but then we're going to put up another episode that only focuses on, you know, Melissa Hickson's voice uh, as it relates to her husband, you know, Michael, we don't want to use past tense. Um, we, we just want to keep it present because she's still in a moment and in a period of grieving. I'm sure the children right now are, you know, just completely missing their father. You know, I, I, I just can't imagine, you know, not being here for my troops. I call them Julie. You know, I call them kings and queens. But, you know, the other term of affection that I have when I refer to them is my troops. And I've always said that, you know, mm-hmm. these are my troops. This is my squad. And I just can't imagine not being here or what that pain might be like, especially when uh, it happens uh, unexpectedly, um, which brings us to, you know, something around the cost of lowered expectations. Right. Yeah, Torn, we've talked about this and, and I see I have this conversation probably once a week in, in my in my day life and, you know, our community and able-bodied people have set a, a lowered set of expectations about people with disabilities, what we can do. And, and the result of that, the way that you and I usually talk about it is being minimized and devalued in the work setting. Right. Um, but it's also very evident. And in this case, um, it's the larger picture of people with disabilities being devalued by society. And when we allow bias and, and ableism to permeate our decision-making about the value of another human being, we can't be surprised when we see that that also creeps in to the people and the institutions who are entrusted to, to keep us alive. And this is evident of it. And I was I was also able to speak to the team at, at Texas Adapt. Um, and and I, real, real quick, who, sorry. who is yeah, who is Texas Adapt? So I, I don't know if you have ever seen kind of the shows or the, the documentaries on the passage of the ADA um, in Washington, and they brought in buses of people with disabilities to do a, a crawl up the Capitol steps. Um, mm. And so there, that was national adapt and Texas adapt is the, the chapter, um, representing the state of Texas. And they are, I mean, they really are a grassroots organizing, um, body to lobby, protest, advocate for, um, equal treatment for people with disabilities. And they really have focused a lot of their work on the basic institutions of being able to get into buildings, to get equal health care, to get equal access, to have equal opportunity. And so they actually held a protest um, for justice for, for Michael Hickson. And we were able to speak to, to David Witte, one of their national organizers. Um, and, and he really had a lot to say about how people with physical disabilities, especially complex physical disabilities, um, are treated and are fearful of, of seeking health care. Um, in, in many cases, one of the individuals I spoke to from, from ADAPT this week also told me about she had a, a slip in the shower the other day, and she was terrified that she might have to go to the hospital. Can you imagine slipping in the shower and being afraid to, to go get your ankle mended up because you twisted it. Yeah. Yeah. So you all just, just so that you know, you can find them at adaptoftexas.org. Again, it's adaptoftexas.org in the group uh, is uh, also calling for Charles Laird, the CEO of St. David's of South Austin to meet and to amend their triage policies to be more just toward people with disabilities. So Julie is right. They, uh, they, they staged a demonstration on July 4th, which was independence day. Go figure. Uh, and not only did they stage the demonstration, but you know, they are, they, uh, put a set of demands in front of the hospital. And so they are very serious about 
the work that they are doing. The group that was out there consisted of more than 50 people uh, who expressed a very clear passion. Thanks for sharing that, Julie. Yeah, no. And and I think that, um, you know, we have to understand, again, that this isn't just a, a healthcare issue. This is a society that looks at people who can't work, who look differently, who sound differently um, and, and move differently than the, the perfect model, um, have less value and are less worthy of our time and, and our consideration. So let's, let's go back to Michael's story, if that's okay. Yeah. So I think you, you, you have a clip. We have a clip for uh, or from David Witte, the national organizer who had this to say about the impacts of COVID on healthcare for people with disabilities and how it is a wake up call for the rest of us. Like we all really need a wake up call. DJ Sells, why don't you put in that clip for us? Right now, especially now that we have this opportunity for a spotlight on the disability community, we're trying to focus on that. And, and we're, we're sorry for the way that Michael and his family were treated and are continuing to be treated. Um, we know that other people have had similar experiences and other people have had very different experiences. You know, the, um, the disability community should be outraged at this, yeah. but it really was just like this, this was the next thing that happened. First they came to our, for our ventilators, then they came for our beds, you know, and, a couple of months ago, CMS had HHS and CMS had to issue federal guidelines on how to treat people with disabilities. We haven't been, we're not new. We, we've been here the whole time. They, those guidelines should have been established a long time ago. So the, the need for federal mandates to tell states to not kill people with disabilities, that's, that's the message. That's what people are not focusing on is that the the feds have to come in and say, don't kill people with disabilities. Right. That's, that's just wrong. That that should even be necessary. And so, you know, it, I mean, David said it so nicely, right? It, it, good luck um, w- with getting the health care that you need in a system that is short on resources, short on access, and has to make decisions about what's best for, for you, um, under incredible strain. And so if we kind of go back to, with that mindset, Michael coming into the hospital, his doctors deciding that they are not going to treat him, um, within, I want to say just at about 48 hours, maybe a little bit less, um, Michael was transferred to a hospice unit and, and a hospice, if you're not familiar, is is where a person who's dying um, goes to be cared for in, in those final stages of their life. Very important um, people and precious people who do that work. Um, so Michael was transferred after they chose to not provide him care for the coronavirus. And they sedated him and withdrew both his nutrition and his hydration. And he died six days later from complications of the coronavirus. And it would have been easy for us to just simply say that he died. Like we could have started the segment with something so forward, so abrupt, so direct. We could have done that. What we wanted to do was to include a bit of context that helped shape a bit of who he is from a human standpoint. We didn't want him to be another casualty, another number of COVID or just another casualty number of COVID. We tried to use the first portion of this episode to humanize who he is, who his wife is, his five children. We even tried to give a bit of context around the apparatus that is in that ecosystem, the healthcare nursing facility, if you will, the healthcare medical center. Uh, And now we'll get into, I guess, some of the professionals that are responsible for the outcome of Mr. Michael Hickson. Yeah. So 
when I when I read the story in the Texan, I reached out to the the media, the the contact us for St. David's, um, and said, "Hey, we'd we'd really like to get a response from you." The statement that you gave after the death of Mr. Hickson was not enough. And here are some questions that we're specifically interested in, in you answering. And what we got back um, was a, a two-page statement, uh, which we'll post on our, our Facebook and we'll also link to in the show notes from Dr. Dr. DeVry Anderson, who is the chief medical officer at St. David's. And Dr. Anderson put out a, a strong statement um, and he says in it, some people want the public to believe that we took the position that Mr. Hickson's life wasn't worth being saved. And that is absolutely wrong. It wasn't medically possible to save him. Why? I don't know because he's why his life didn't have value. Right. I, I mean, that, and that's the thing is, is he goes into great detail about how sick Mr. Hickson was and about the complexity of his situation. And I, I did a little kind of background on Dr. Anderson. And let me tell you, he's a veteran. He is a, a lauded leader in the medical community. But what he's asking us for us to do in this statement is not to believe what our ears heard on the tape. On the five minute conversation that Miss Melissa Hickson had with the doctor responsible or leading the treatment for Mr. Michael Hickson. And what we will share with you are that ethicists and disability rights activists have expressed grave concerns with how that treatment has been not only deployed, but how they arrived at a, a, a solution of finality as it relates to the life of Michael Hickson. So yes. there most certainly is a bit of uproar at this particular point. And it's not just coming from lay people like Julie and I uh, in separate states that have nothing to do with Texas. It's not uproar coming only from activist groups like Adapt of Texas. It's coming from a variety of people. If you go out and Google Mr. Michael Hickson in this scenario, it has been picked up by news outlets it hasn't been shouted enough from the mountaintop, but it has been picked up by a number of people in the sense of something ain't necessarily right in this story. Would you agree, Julie? Oh, yeah. And if you read the two page statement, which I hope that you do, um, you'll see that, you know, nowhere does Dr. Anderson address the, the ableist language and the demeaning tone with which the physician on his staff uh, spoke to, to Melissa Hickson? Um, nowhere does he acknowledge the need to ensure his staff uh, recognize and manage their bias in the treatment of, of disabled human beings. He spends a lot of time talking about himself and, and his staff and you know how they hurt when someone dies. Um, and he also goes on to refer to, um, in part of a statement, quotes, adults and individuals with disabilities, not recognizing that that in itself is creating individuals with disabilities as the other, the not fully human counterparts to adults. And I asked specifically for the hospital to address the plan to train staff and phys physicians. And we got no response to those requests. None. None. Now we got a two page statement. Mm -hmm. where we didn't get any specific plans to address training. And, and, and let me tell you, first of all, you know, I struggle with this. I struggle in the sense that I know that there's value in certification and training. Um, I want to be responsible in, in my statement. I want to be responsible because we have a budding podcast and, you know, I don't want to do anything that or say anything that brings. <sighs> I want to be responsible, but I don't, I, I, I struggle with, with people using the word training 
when the equal sign points to humanity. And in this instance, I know that the medical center is going to subvert or they're going to bypass humanity and they're going to they're going to travel down the alphabet julie and they're going to focus on legality you know what i'm saying yes. they're going to focus on that legal angle and that disappoints me that that infuriates me that this man's life came down to legality and not humanity and so much of of everything related to conversations we have about people with disabilities is mitigating risk for the organization and at the end of the day right michael he may have died from coronavirus we're never going to know that but what we do know is michael did die because a group of people making life and death decisions on his behalf saw him as not worth the risk and not worth the time that his life wasn't worth saving because they told us so on the video. Um, so that brings up that legal issue that I mentioned a moment ago. They did tell us that on video, Julie, but we got to be fair and balanced as one faulty ass network would say. <laughs> this comes down to guardianship. Yeah. And I got a question and, and I won't necessarily pose it now. I'll let you set it up. But from a legality standpoint, this comes down to guardianship. And, and I'm just, listen, I can't even hold water. I can't hold it. I am struggling with why the wife, wife, I mean, last time I checked, that's spelled W-I-F-E. I am struggling with why the wife does not have guardianship. But why don't you set it up? Yeah. So, so this is where the story is bad enough. And then we do part two, right? So what we know right now is what has happened to, to Michael Hickson and, and the result of, of his passing on his family, including his wife and, and children. The next piece is the guardianship issue. And if you read the article in the Texan, um, the statement from, from Dr. Anderson, Nearly every conversation mentions very specifically that Melissa is not Michael's legal guardian at the time of his death. And so let me give you kind of the, the short order on what happened it's here. It's freaking baffling. Like, it is. Just, even, just to even hear you say that, the wife is not the legal guardian, but go ahead. So when someone becomes incapacitated, um, generally speaking, the, the parent, if they're a child, or the spouse, if they're married, becomes the legal guardian. And then at some point, once you have stability um, kind of in the situation, um, you file to take that temporary guardianship and make it permanent. And this is kind of just all the legalese of, of having to go through this process with the court. And so Mrs. Hickson was provided um, temporary guardianship. She was Michael's guardian for, I, I want to say, well over a year um, when he became incapacitated. And at some point that temporary expires and then is, is made to permanent. Well, what happens is people in the other, in the individual's life. So in Michael's life are able to say, well, I might want to be guardian. So I can go to the court and say, hold on, instead of Melissa, make me the guardian. And so during this time, um, and, and actually I read through about three or four um, court filings related to this conversation. Um, 
Melissa had Melissa's um, sister-in-law had the opportunity to waive her right to, to guardianship, but she chose not to. And she decided that as a physician, she would like to be Michael's guardian. And so when it becomes contested in the court, um, what has to happen is an investigation to determine who's who's going to give some recommendations about who's the best guardian for Michael in this case. And it, it, it's this is not a, a new story, right? When someone becomes older or they become incapacitated, family issues come to light, right? And and people are very protective of their loved ones and, and generally speaking, are going to feel like they're the best one to make that decision. And so as the court went to figure this out, what they do is appoint a temporary guardian. And that can't be either Melissa or Michael's sister. So they appointed a company called Family Elder Care, um, also in Austin. Um, and they provide services to, to seniors and people with disabilities, including things like guardianship. And really what guardianship means in, in this case is that that organization has the full and legal right to make all life and death decisions, all treatment decisions, all placement decisions on their ward's behalf. And in pause. this case, Michael, Michael was their ward. Pause, pause, yes. pause, 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 pause. I w you know, there are times when I wish we were on video. Like I'm pause. So what you are telling me and 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 I'm saying this from an, a position of naivety. You're saying to me that in this experience legally they said we're not going to give the we're not going to grab grant guardianship to the wife or the sister. We're going to give it to an entity. Yes. And so you're saying this entity. And what I want listeners to understand is that this entity. This entity had the ability to say, you know what? Nah, we ain't going to feed this month. We ain't not going to feed them. I almost said it, Julie. I, I, I caught myself. <laughs> We're not going to feed them. We're not going to care for them. If you go back to the top, let me scroll. The statement was his room was at the end of a hall, empty and dark with no machines at all treating him. What you're telling me, Julie, is that this entity, family elder care, in their appointment of guardianship, was able to decide the degree of support care that he received above and beyond or primary to anything that a family member may have wanted. That's what you want me to believe. Yes. And it was not because Melissa Hickson did something wrong. It was not because she was irresponsible. It was not because she was negligent of her husband's care. It was because her sister-in-law wanted to fight her for it. And in the interim, Michael got sick and these strangers were able to decide to withhold care for him and allow him to die in a dark room by himself. I just want that to sink in. Um, Because when I think about, you know, individuals that are battling, you know, the various issues that they have, um, you know, be it personal or professional. I want you to think about the people that are coming into your workplace. That are dealing with shit that you ain't you, you have no idea 
what they're dealing with. And so when you go into some of these businesses and, you know, a person pops off on you. You don't have an idea what they might be dealing with. When a person can't meet a particular deadline. You don't really have an idea of what it is that they might be dealing with. When a person's level of contribution drops below what you deem to be a value. I would encourage you to ask them, is anything happening? Is there a reason why you have, you know, fallen behind? It's not normal, Julie, for you to perform like this. Is there anything that I can do to versus you penalizing them, punishing them? Being prejudiced towards them. You don't have an idea of all that they are going through. And I'm telling you, as I listen to the story, read the reports, listen to video, audio. I'm just amazed that Miss Melissa Hickson has shown up the way that she has shown up through this particular story. And I promise you that, you know, Julie and I, we wanted to do everything that we possibly could. And within our scope, you know, we're not. We're not investigative journalists and shout out to you, Julie, because when I say that you grabbed the story and you have done research that I would not have even thought to do, I appreciate. I've always appreciated, but I appreciate even more having you as a pod partner, not a lazy pod partner, but someone who said that we this is important enough that. I'm going to sacrifice on some of my day to day obligations and I'm going to do a bit of digging so that we can go into the story. I absolutely appreciate you for bringing it to my radar and then reinforcing how important it was that we have it on our radar. So we're going to post everything that we've received to date, including a statement from the hospital. We're going to put all of that on our Facebook page. You as a listener, you listen, you don't have to feel the way that Julie and I feel. You can review it for yourself. Uh, But there's something in those conversations, those communications that it jumped out to us. And I don't know. We just think that it may jump out for you. And for anyone, any outlet, any entity demonizing Melissa Hickson, we simply wanted to give her a chance to respond to share what her experience was with the hospital. And we wanted to highlight, we just wanted to highlight for a moment, the character of a strong black woman supporting the king and her life. So we promised to put the full interview of Melissa Hickson in a bonus episode that we'll have produced by our producer, DJ sales. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think as, as we kind of wrap up this episode, I, one of the last things I asked Melissa and and I think she says it, it best. So I want to give our listeners a chance to, to hear it here is, you know, what's next in the fight for justice for, for Michael and, and how can we help, um, so I want to take just one more minute to hear Melissa here and and let her give us her guidance. I think right now we're fine. Um, again, just taking some time to figure it all out. Um, it's a lot to kind of figure out from here where we go. But I think right now we're fine. I just really would appreciate the support of everyone um, as far as getting this message out, as far as speaking on what happened to my husband. Um, as far as the, the probate court and guardianship, family elder care, and also St. David's, to keep speaking out like you're doing and letting them know, letting them know that you're not going to take this. Like this, this has to change. Um, that's what I really want is just support and getting them to be accountable for what they've done and to change things moving forward. All right. Um, so that 
I thank you for for taking the time and and giving this story not a quarter of of the attention and time it deserves, but you know, we're really blessed to have a platform you and I, where we can lift up people's voices who otherwise were not going to be heard and in a way that I feel is very unique um, to our lived experiences and and um, the way that we see things. So thank you for that. Um, we really look forward to continuing to support Melissa and her family. And um, I guess I think we're ready to wrap up. Yeah, and it's just a, an indication for each of you out there listening that we really want you to trust us as a platform. You know, we, we're we not in the top 10 of podcasts, but, but we want to be taken seriously. And so if you have stories inside of your workplace, if you read of articles in your community, the local area that we may have missed, we can't subscribe to everything, you know, use that as an opportunity. Use this episode as one that serves as a beacon of trust. Like we probably would want to share it with Julie and Torrin so that they can share it with other people. Consider us. So push us the information. You can use the social channels. Julie is on uh, Twitter at Julie. So that's S O W A S H Julie. So wash. I'm on Twitter at Torin Ellis. Quite frankly, I'm on all of social media at Torin Ellis. Um, but we want you to trust us. We want you to share some information with us. This was a very important episode for us. Quick mention, uh, Not Dead Yet is a national grassroots disability rights organization or group that opposes legalization of assisted suicide and euthanasia as deadly forms of discrimination against old, ill, and disabled people. They actually protested outside of the hospital as well. If, in fact, this weekend you give up coffee, you give up going to the rib, the local rib joint, you sacrifice on one of those fast food meals, um, consider making a donation to Not Dead Yet. It's a national grassroots disability organization. Yeah. And um, I, I think we're, our, our name drops are um, together this week. So I'll just give our name drops for the two of us. And, and the first is to uh, representative Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts. Um, she recently retweeted Michael's story with the hashtag black disabled lives matter. And it was really after that that we saw some of the national orgs like WAPO, uh, I'm sorry, WAPO and New York Post pick up the story. Um, and, and finally, um, to, to Melissa Hickson, who I don't know how she could not be our name drop this week. Um, she's a, a true champion. She was a true champion to Michael and one of the kindest and warmest people I've had the opportunity to speak to. And I don't think this is going to be the last that we've heard of her voice. I think she's going to have a growing place in our in our world of advocacy and diversity and inclusion, and we're excited to help support that. And they also have a friend of Melissa's who's created a GoFundMe page uh, to help support her and her children. If you go to GoFundMe.com and search for Hickson, H-I-C-K-S-O-N, family fund, you'll be able to find um, this. And, and hopefully if you've got some extra dollars and you're able to um, help support this amazing family as they are transitioning to a new, a new normal. Uh, my CB, what do you call that? CBC code? Um, yes. On the back of the credit card? Yes. Uh, I'm actually typing mine in right now. So uh, I just want listeners to understand. You hear that? Can you hear that drop? Can you hear that drop? Yep, yep, yep. yep. Drop. Yeah, I'm pulling out my credit card and I'm dropping my CVC code in right now. I'm making a donation to Miss Melissa Hickson, not because I want you all to clap for me or salute me, but I really, really want to see her family move through this period. Uh, and it's my 
little, little contribution uh, that I can do based on, I want to say the hurt uh, and the disappointment that I felt as we covered the story. And so because of that, I'm just simply going to say Julie and I were ghosts. See ya. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transformed, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.